Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson, and on behalf of Dr. Ashley Best and the rest of the Bench Talk team, we want to thank you for tuning in today. This show is about bringing science to the people. We want the show to be a clearinghouse for the research that is important to all of us. So we've spent this week scouring the library stacks for research publications that are just too interesting to be ignored. Let's get started. Before we kick off this week's episode of Bench Talk, the Week in Science, I wanted to address a certain issue, and the issue has to do with the fact that even though the show is called The Week in Science, you might have already noticed that some of the research publications we discuss here are a little bit more than a week old. In fact, some of them are a few months old. There are several reasons for this. First, there are more than 1.5 million peer-reviewed articles or chapters of books published every year. That's a huge amount of literature that we're perusing. It's about 29,000 articles on science being published every week. Second, your co-hosts on this show, the members of the Bench Talk team, we don't get paid for producing this show. We all we all have our regular jobs that we're doing. This show is a labor of love, and we do love doing it. We certainly don't make a salary from this. In fact, no one at WFMPLP actually gets paid, but it does consume a lot of time. Third, after looking through these 29,000 different research articles every week, we select the articles that we actually want to feature on this show, but then we have to read the article write a script, record it, and then piece it together into this episode. So that's why most of the research articles we feature on this show every week actually might be more than a few weeks old. They might even be more than a couple months old. In the grand scheme of things, I think a couple months is not a bad turnaround time for bringing you the latest research. Now that we've got that out of the way, let's start this show. Dr. Dave here. Hey, if you've been watching the news at all, you probably have heard Elizabeth Warren's DNA results are in. Elizabeth Warren has been serving as senator from Massachusetts since 2013. Before that, she was a professor of law at Harvard Law School. And apparently, her family had these stories about having a Native American ancestor in the past. Now, Senator Warren had worked at four different universities teaching law before she ran for the Senate, and apparently she declared herself as white in all four of these applications. But something changed in 1987. She was 39 years old at that time, and she says that she became more aware of her Native American heritage after the deaths of various family members. So she started declaring on HR forms, you know, human resources forms, she started declaring that she was Native American rather than white. She did this both at the University of Pennsylvania and at Harvard University. So even though she applied at both of those schools as a white person, after she was there, she apparently changed her status or ethnic status to Native American. For a number of years, she listed herself as Native American on an academic survey about the racial makeup of Harvard's law school faculty and students. She says she listed herself as Native American to connect with other people like her. 
Well, it became an issue during her initial senatorial campaign because her Republican opponent claimed that she was being dishonest and abusing the affirmative action system that was at Harvard. Her opponent called her Pocahontas, which is a racist and mocking term. President Donald Trump has repeated this Pocahontas taunt as well, most infamously at an event at the White House last year where he was supposed to be honoring a group of Navajo code talkers from World War II. And he instead pulled out this Pocahontas term and just ended up insulting them. Pocahontas was a young Native American woman. She actually only lived to be 21 years of age. She was living in Virginia in the very early 1600s. She was a member of the Zenacomica tribe, and she's especially known for helping the colonial settlement of Jamestown, Virginia. There's all sorts of stories about her saving the life of a settler and marrying a different settler and moving to England. There's a lot of questions about all these stories about Pocahontas, but she is a notable and heroic character, in spite of what some politicians might say. The Boston Globe newspaper did an analysis a few years ago about whether her ethnicity played any role in her being hired at Harvard, and they couldn't show any evidence of that. It didn't look like Harvard hired her because of her ethnicity, and that's true for the other universities where she had been hired. The Globe reported that the University of Pennsylvania, when they were hiring Senator Warren, had to file an EEOC form for her because she was white. And it's just a form showing that the university was not discriminating against people of other backgrounds. That indicates that she was not using her American Indian status to get hired. When the Harvard University Law School was hiring Elizabeth Warren, there were actually student demonstrations outside the building against her being hired. Students were glad that they were hiring a woman, finally, but the students were distressed that it was not a minority woman. Again, that shows you that the universities were not hiring Elizabeth Warren because she was an American Indian. She was extremely well qualified for her position. In fact, currently she is ranked third in the world for number of academic citations of her publication. Her specialty is on bankruptcy and commercial law. So she is incredibly well qualified. But what's important to note is that anyone hired through affirmative action is still very well qualified. That's how that system works. So one question might be, does Elizabeth Warren actually have Native American ancestors in her family? Well, a good old-fashioned genealogist looked into this question a while back, and he traced the family's accounts of Warren's Native American heritage back to the late 1800s, I believe, making her 132nd Native American. Now, there was some controversy about this estimation, though. One of the questions on these kind of studies is always, is this one person in your family 100% Native American, or were they only 50% Native American, or 25% Native American? So it makes these calculations really complicated, if you don't know that. And because of the vast amounts of discrimination there is and was against Native Americans, people didn't like to talk about that. Well, to get more solid information about her ancestors, Senator Warren submitted her personal DNA for testing, and the results have just come in. These DNA tests are usually based on DNA extracted from buccal cells, uh, cheek cells in the mouth, 
and they typically look at single nucleotide polymorphisms called SNPs, SNPs. SNPs are the most common type of genetic variation you find in humans. We have something like 11 million different SNPs. And what they basically do is look for a correlation between specific mutations and different racial or ethnic groups. They had a very reputable molecular biologist who analyzed the DNA results, and he concluded that the vast majority of Elizabeth Warren's ancestry is European. But the results strongly support the existence of an unmixed Native American ancestor from six to ten generations ago. So it looks like Elizabeth Warren does indeed have one Native American ancestor in her past. The portion of Warren's DNA that really stood out to this researcher was found on her chromosome number 10. This little part of chromosome number 10 was there that really indicated that she had Native American ancestry. Now, this kind of examination for Native American ancestries at the DNA level, it's tricky because not very many Native Americans have actually submitted their DNA samples for analysis. It's a long story, but basically various Native American leaders do not trust the scientific community enough to give them DNA to analyze. And so to make up for the lack of direct DNA samples from Native Americans who are from this part of the world, scientists have analyzed DNA from the Native peoples from other parts of the New World. They look at the DNA variability from Native peoples who live in Mexico, Peru, and Colombia. The idea here is that the people who live in South and Central America share a lot of the same DNA as the Native Americans in North America, since they are all thought to have immigrated to the Americas across the Bering Strait some 12,000 years ago. So these samples of DNA from South and Central America were fully sequenced and not just examined at the SNP level, and so are thought to be much more accurate. But you have to admit, you are using DNA from peoples who live in South and Central America and trying to predict about the DNA of peoples who live in North America. It is a little bit speculative. And that might be why the final results are so ambiguous. That might be why they don't know if Elizabeth Warren's native ancestor was six generations ago, or was it seven or eight or nine or ten generations ago. They're just not quite sure. This range of six to ten generations can be thought of as a fraction of her DNA. So six generation represents one thirty-second of her DNA is Native American, and ten generations represents a fraction of one over 1,024, one one-thousand-twenty-fourth Native American. That's what you would see if you were going back ten generations. You can run through the calculations yourself. So someone from Europe, if one of their parents is Native American, they would be half Native American. Now, what if it was the grandparent that was Native American? That would mean you would be one-fourth Native American, because one out of four grandparents. If it was a great-grandparent, that'd be one out of eight, because every one of us has eight different great-grandparents. If you were talking about great-great-grandparents, that would be one out of 16, because we've got 16 of those. And so one out of 32 is the next generation up. That's great-great-great-grandparents. One out of 32, because we each have 32 great-great-great-grandparents. 
And that's the more optimistic prediction. It's possible that Elizabeth Warren's Native American ancestry goes back 10 generations. And that's how you end up with this fraction of 1 over 1,024. When you analyze DNA tests, it always comes up with probabilities like this. It's not just a black and white answer, yes or no. It's always based on quantities or probabilities. And while we're on this topic of this range of answers, somewhere between six and ten generations, I notice on talk radio and on conservative TV like Fox News, they're only using that 1 over 1,024 number. They never seem to use that 1 out of 32 number because that's not as favorable to their argument that Elizabeth Warren is really not Native American. Well, what fraction of Native American DNA does a person have to have to be considered Native American? Well, this is called blood quantum. Blood quantum. Blood quantum is basically the percentage of Native American DNA that a person has. Some tribes have a minimum blood quantum that a person needs to have to be considered a member of that tribe. The Navajo Nation in Arizona, for instance, requires 25% Navajo blood, in quotes, or DNA, for them to be considered a Navajo. Other tribes, however, like in Oklahoma, where Elizabeth Warren is from, they don't have any minimum requirement for being a member of their tribes. Just one distant relative who was a Native American is enough. Apparently, Warren possesses 12 times more Native American DNA than a white person from Great Britain does, and she's got 10 times more Native American DNA than a white person from Utah So in my mind, there really isn't any question about Elizabeth Warren indeed having one relative in her background who was Native American. This does bring up an issue that often arises when you're talking about race and ethnicity. What is the criteria for classifying someone as Native American or as African American or Jewish or Japanese? How much DNA does it take? I think you will find that experts would all include a cultural context to this question. It's not only about the DNA. Now, there has been some criticisms of this move by Senator Warren to prove this part of our ancestry. First of all, there's questions about the accuracy of the prediction, since so little DNA from indigenous peoples from North America have been analyzed to compare to her DNA. Plus, Some tribal leaders are complaining that it's the tribe themselves who decide who is a member and who is not a member. It's not a DNA test that's the great decider. And some Native American activists point to this as just another example of racial or ethnic appropriation. Because after all, if Elizabeth Warren's fraction of Native American DNA is the low number, 1 out of 32, then that means about 3% of her DNA is Native American, which means that 97% of her DNA is probably European. So is this the case of someone who's 97% white and being able to enjoy all the privileges of that status, making a big deal out of the 3% of their DNA that's Native American? There's also an issue that's been raised around the fact that Harvard University was using Warren's self-declared status as a Native American to claim that they had more racial diversity at their law school than maybe they actually had, considering that Warren is primarily of European descent. So did her claim of Native American heritage discourage Harvard from hiring other faculty who really do have majority Native American heritage? 
it's all quite complex and sort of gives me a headache when I think about it too much, especially in light of the fact that Senator Warren is one of my favorite senators. I want to finish this story reminding you that back when Trump was mocking Elizabeth Warren for claiming Native American ancestry, and he was calling her Pocahontas, he offered to administer a DNA test and promised to donate a million dollars to the charity of her choice if she agreed to have her DNA tested. Well, Warren seized on this proposition, and now that she has had her DNA tested, she's asking the president to donate that $1 million to the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center, a nonprofit that seeks to protect Native American women from violence. She's also taken the opportunity to remind President Trump that he hasn't released his tax returns, since that also has to do with revealing your past. So Donald Trump's response, first he said, no, I never said that about the million dollars, but they have it on videotape, so that doesn't hold water very well. And now he's saying, no, if you look at the videotape, it says that he has to administer the DNA test himself. Ew. Well, that's an image I certainly don't want to be thinking about. Thank you. There are many activities associated with astronomy that take nothing more than one's eyes and a willingness to step out under clear, dark skies. As autumn continues toward winter, it is even easier to step into the dark at an earlier time of the evening. Of course, unlike summer months, a jacket could be quite useful. Meteor showers are one of those events that take no equipment. Patience is more than need, as one never knows when a streak of light will pass through the starry sky. Near the peak of the showers, one is helped a bit because there is a higher chance of seeing these elusive streaks of light. November boasts two noted showers. Early in the month, a tarred meteor shower contributes to the night sky. This is a sparse shower with no well-defined peak date. The tards can be active from mid-October through the end of November on into early December, but they have the advantage that the radiant point, that position in the sky where the meteors seem to originate, is above the horizon as darkness comes. A slow starter, as the radiant point rises higher and higher through the night, a few more meteors may be glimpsed. The meteor count of the tards is not what makes them interesting. From time to time, during the weeks when they are active, one might glance a fireball, a really bright meteor. Fireballs are much rarer than the run-of-the-mill shooting star, and can be quite impressive. As with the more traditional meteors, there is no guarantee of success of catching one. But there is zero chance of catching either if one sits on the couch watching television. The Tards have the advantage this year of not competing with the light of the moon. The moon can be a pretty thing to see in the sky, whether it is a thin crescent above the western horizon just after sunset, or a full moon rising majestically in the east after the sun has set in the west. But the more light that is present in the night sky, the fewer faint objects that can be seen, and meteors fall in this group. Brighter meteors and fireballs mentioned earlier can be spotted under moonlit skies, but these are rarer than the more common, dimmer shooting stars. So the sparse tyrids, active at the beginning of the month of November, benefit this year from the lack of a moon in the sky. That is not the case for the more active and better known Leonid meteor shower. 
The landed meteor shower can produce some 10 to 15 meteors per hour near its peak. This kind of activity wears less on the patients, especially if one is out on a chilly autumn night. This year, though, the waxing gibbous moon will be up during early evening hours, not setting until after midnight, so this will cut down a bit on the number seen. Still, this plays well to when one should best hunt for meteors. The best time to look for meteors is in the morning skies rather than the early or late evening. That is because of what causes a meteor shower to begin with. A meteor shower is set up by debris left behind by a comet in most cases. Material that was once trapped on that icy, rocky mass escapes when the comet comes in close to the sun and is heated. Most of that ejected material continues moving in the same orbit as the comet itself. And on each trip near the sun, the comet can replenish the supply. The next step in producing a meteor shower is for the Earth to pass through this debris field. If the Earth's orbit intersects the path of a comet, the forward motion of the Earth carries it through the debris. But it is the spinning motion of Earth that rotates the viewer more directly into the direction of the debris field. We face more directly into the direction of the debris field when the spin of the Earth turns us basically into the direction we are moving around the Sun, and thus into the more direct line of the debris field itself. And that is generally a couple of hours before sunrise. In the case of the Leonids, this will be the early morning hours of Saturday, November 17th, and the early morning hours of Sunday, November 18th. And, as mentioned before, the waxing gibbous moon will be setting locally just after midnight, so interference from moonlight is not possible. When I plan one of these trips into the night to see a meteor shower, I take along a comfortable chair or even a cot to make it easier on the neck. A blanket on the ground would do, but there is always that damp dew to deal with if a blanket is used. But it is an option. Once comfortable, I simply scan the sky slowly, chatting with any others that want to share the adventure. This is a good time to look for constellations that may be visible in the sky at this time of the year, and the time of night that I am out. If there are planets above the horizon, one can scan for those as well, all the while continuing to scan the sky, because you never know when that streak of light will appear. And many is the time I have been out with others and heard them shout out, There goes one! And I was looking in the wrong direction. So a slow scan, noting what is above my head while not straying too far from the task at hand, is most successful in finding this elusive quarry. In the early evening skies in November, Saturn and Mars are easiest planets to spot. Saturn is low in the southwest shortly after sunset, while Mars is almost due south. The crescent moon will make its appearance in the west after sunset by about the 8th. It will pass by Saturn the evenings of the 10th and the 11th. By the 16th of November, it will have passed beyond Mars and the pair will have set by about 1 a.m. on the 17th to give the dark skies necessary to see those Leonid meteor showers a bit better. Venus will be making its morning appearance by about 6 a.m., when it will still be dark enough to catch some Leonids, though by 6.30 to 7 in the morning, the light of dawn may end the search window. But there is always the next morning, at the same time if cloudy weather wipes out the first of these opportunities.
Dave here, and I've got some fresh news for you, fresh off the press. And guess what? It's not a tweet from Trump. It has to do with the cherry blossoms in Japan. As you probably know, cherry trees typically bloom in the springtime. But now there's some 350 different reports coming from Japan about emerging cherry blossoms now in October rather than in April when they usually bloom. And it's thought that it might have to do with the extreme weather that Japan has experienced this year. In September of 2018, Japan was hit by Typhoon Jebi, which was the strongest storm that Japan's been hit by in 25 years. And apparently this stripped the leaves off many of the cherry trees that are growing there. Well, it's believed that the leaves are producing a hormone in the summertime and in the fall that typically inhibit the flower buds from blooming. But if the leaves are removed by strong wind, then that hormone pressure is not there. So that might be why you're seeing some flowering. Horticultural experts in Japan think that they'll still experience a April bloom of cherry blossoms, but that it might not quite be as spectacular as most years since some of those buds are actually emerging now. But they'll still be able to have their cherry blossom celebration in the spring. So this effect of this typhoon that is affecting the blooming date of the cherry trees in Japan this year In addition to that, it appears that climate change is also affecting the cherry tree blooming dates. Japan has something like 1,200 years of recorded data about the time of cherry blossoms, and they're finding that that date is slowly creeping forward, that cherry blossoms are blooming a little bit earlier now than any other time in history. This is probably due to climate change. For roughly a thousand years until 1850, these cherry trees in Japan typically bloomed around April 17th every year. Now the expected arrival date is around April 6th. Oh boy, that's a whole 11 days earlier. That's a big difference. And you probably know that Japan actually donated a large number of cherry trees to Washington, D.C. back in 1912. They gave these cherry trees to the United States as a symbol of friendship. And over the last 100 years, these donated cherry trees are blooming earlier now. Instead of blooming on an average about April 6th of every year, they're now blooming about April 1st, five days earlier. I know this has affected my viewing of these cherry trees in D.C. because seeing these cherry blossoms in D.C. have been sort of on my botanical bucket list for my whole life. And I actually got to see them a year or two ago because it coincided with my spring break at my job. But it also might have been because blooming is earlier now than it used to be. So whereas it was a wonderful opportunity for me to finally see the cherry blossoms in D.C., it does make me worry about what the future holds for these beautiful trees considering climate change. And as an addendum, I can tell you that here in Louisville, Kentucky, I was walking around my neighborhood in the Highlands just last weekend in October And I saw rhododendron bushes in bloom. That's a scary thing because, again, rhododendrons usually bloom in the springtime, not in October. What are we doing to these poor plants? Thank you. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place 
and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM. Thank you for listening to WFMP LP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.